Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Oh, just building my sukkah, Leslie. How about you? Oh, uh, we had tiki drinks here at the house uh, this week, which was a nice uh, thing to accompany the shit show that was the debate. Oh, God. No, you can't start talking about the debate yet. That's that's one of our topics. Don't get ahead of ourselves. Spoilers, Dan. Spoilers. <laughs> it's our first. It's our first topic. You, you know, if you're going to need to mute and duck out of the way. But uh, there is lots of news this week. So, yeah, that's what we call a transition. Leading off headlines and casting news, newcomer Iman Vellani is joining the MCU and will star in Miss Marvel for Disney+. Over at Peacock, Hamilton grad Renee Elise Goldsberry will star opposite Sarah Bareilles in Tina Fey comedy Girls 5 Eva. And this just in, Keegan-Michael Key, Alan Cumming, Fred Armisen, Kristen Chenoweth, Jamie Camille, and Jane Krakowski have all joined Cecily Strong in Apple's upcoming musical comedy from Lauren Michaels. Sign me up for that based on the cast and creators alone. Over at Netflix, Netflix is developing a new live-action Conan the Barbarian TV series and revealed that Ephesus Family is ending after season five. The streamer is also teaming with the Obamas and Doc McStuffins creator Chris Nee for an animated preschool show. But allow me to be the first to say that I would really like Netflix to contact me when they're developing a new live-action Conan the Barbarian series with the Obamas. <laughs> Crossover, Dan. Elsewhere on the development front, the CW is teaming with Hillary Clinton and Steven Spielberg to adapt women's voting novel The Woman's Hour as a scripted anthology. Ah, Hillary Clinton and the CW together at last. Uh, I mean, that was a long one in the works, Dan. That <laughs> I, I first got tipped off that that project landed at the CW in development more than a year ago. Um, it's gone through a couple of different incarnations since then. They have a new writer attached with it and and. Amblin, who optioned, you know, Spielberg's Amblin, which optioned the rights to the book two years ago, originally planned it as a closed ended limited series or a TV movie. And now you're going to see a seasonal anthology if, if it goes forward. That is. I'm very disappointed you weren't going to tell me that uh, the Hillary Clinton project was originally in development at UPN. That's that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but but yeah, it, look, it's her first exec producing credit on a scripted show. She is going to be very involved, was already involved in um, getting getting the project set up at Amblin and helped pick the the, the writer who's going to do this too. Yeah, it's it's an impressive project. Over at HBO, the uh, premium cable network has picked up a late night show starring SNL writer Sam Jay. 
HBO has also renewed real time with Bill Maher through 2022. And in other premium cable renewals, Showtime has picked up billions for a sixth season. In other news, Gabrielle Union and NBC have reached a, quote, amicable resolution to her lawsuit alleging racism on the set of America's Got Talent. No further details were provided. To the surprise of nobody, given the success of the launch of the second season of The Boys, Amazon is readying a college set spinoff of The Boys for the future. Strangely, it will not be called The Girls. But do you know that it's a success? I heard Amazon say it's a success, but have you seen any numbers, Dan? Oddly, I have seen no numbers whatsoever. And all I know is people on Twitter being vaguely unhappy that it's coming out weekly as opposed to all at once. And some of the same people who say that the best way to watch shows is weekly. So it's all very confusing. But yes, I I get the impression that at least in terms of conversation, The Boys is a success. Beyond that, who the hell knows? Yep, exactly. Well, wrapping up headlines, Hightown creator Rebecca Cutter has inked an overall deal with producers Lionsgate TV. Well, with all that out of the way, Dan, let's dive right into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, you heard us talk about it in the intro. It was a shit show. Donald Trump and Joe Biden faced off in the first of three planned presidential debates this week. And as CNN's Jake Tapper described it, it was a, quote, a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. End quote. Dan, this is me kicking it to you for your thoughts. It it was very bad. It it was about as bad. And that's the segment. (laughs) There it is. It, it was about as bad a 100 minutes of TV as I have ever watched. And I watched the entire series run of Mixology. I watched four episodes of Hater. I watch every single broadcast uh, TV show that premieres. And man, this was excruciating. I believe it was Dana Bash who actually used the shit show word on CNN. And when you force a CNN anchor to say that something is a shit show, yeah, no, it's a shit show. Um, on, honestly, it, the, the debate set the American political discourse back centuries. The, the, you, you would think that we were an unorganized country of imbeciles based on the conversations that were being had during that debate. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I want to go as minimally partisan as possible, because as I like to say, I know we have Republican listeners, but. The reality is Donald Trump did not come to that debate to debate political issues. He came to that debate to make Joe Biden look as senile, demented, out of touch, communist, as if those are things that are all connected as humanly possible. He did not want to have any conversation about any plans for the next four years. He wanted to badger the Democratic candidate for president. And whether or not you feel as if Joe Biden responded in any way eloquently is up to you. He called the president. He tried. Occasional, right. Occasionally, he he called the president a clown, and I've definitely seen some rending of garments from people feeling as if that was uh, not a dignified way to approach things, as if uh, Donald Trump interrupting Joe Biden talking about his late son, Bo Biden, by calling his other son, Hunter, a junkie, uh, was in some way dignified for the presidency. Um Yeah, it it was awful. And so a lot of the blame has very, very justifiably gone to Chris Wallace, who moderated the debate and is a veteran journalist who should have known better. 
There, There's no other way of putting it. It is not as if this is Chris Wallace's first time at the rodeo, and I don't know what he thought this was going to be. Whatever it is, his job, if it is to moderate a conversation, was not a job well done. There is no alternative way of putting that. You can place the blame on him if you want to, or you can just say whatever happened, he did nothing to prevent it from happening. However you want to decide, uh, there were so many things wrong with what he did. He just half-heartedly tried interrupting the interrupting president and interrupting Joe Biden. He was just interrupting everyone because everyone was interrupting him. And there was no way of getting anything on track. Whatever goals he came into the debate trying to achieve, he failed at every single one of them. So that's that's not a job well done. But the, the, the format gave him no way to fix what was going wrong. And so that is also a problem that is completely out of his hands. Once you're on a barreling train that is going without any track whatsoever, and it's desperately just waiting for inertia or a mountain to stop it, I don't know what you can do. Uh, this was 90 minutes without commercial interruption, which was already stupid, abusive and badly planned. In a different world, maybe you say there's a commercial break. During it, you're like 90 minutes with one interruption. And that at least allows Chris Wallace to, at say the 30 minute mark, to go, we're going to go to commercial a little bit early to take five minutes to call everybody around and say, kids, if you can't play by the rules, I'm going to have to take my ball and go home. But he had no opportunity to do that. There was no place at which he could have gotten on the phone to the Council of Debates or whatever it is and said, Seriously, is there anything we can do? Can you turn off the microphones? Can you find some way to give the president an electric shock every time he interrupts? Is there anything you can do? Because it's not like you could have told Donald Trump to stop doing what he was doing because he just didn't care. That's that's what it is. Expecting him to care is a stupid, stupid thing to expect. So, yeah, this this was a badly structured debate that was horribly moderated and played directly into the hands of a president whose only goal taking that stage was to create chaos. And he did it. And I assume his supporters are pleased. <laughs> and he also failed to condemn white supremacy and instead used the platform as a, as a dog whistle. And, you know, look, you know, the Commission on Presidential Debates has, has promised to make changes for the second and third debates to, quote, ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. It's unclear what any of those changes are. Uh, Fox News anchor Chris Wallace gave a interview to The New York Times after afterward and, and noted that muting Trump would not have been effective. So definitely go go and read that interview. Um, you know, and then, you know, in, in terms of the TV front of it all, the ratings were down from the record 84 million who tuned in to see Trump and Hillary square off in 2016. This week's debate carried across 16 outlets live, drew 73 million viewers not including streaming, that's still good enough for the second largest of any debate in the past 24 years. So yeah. And then you've got two other debates coming up. Steve Scully of C-SPAN will moderate the second town hall style debate on October 15th. And Kristen Welker of NBC News will moderate the final one on October 22nd. Kamala Harris and Mike Pence will face off October 7th in a debate moderated by USA Today's Susan Page. So more of this to come, Dan. And I don't know. Um, I, I was glad that I was not sober watching this, but I, I can't imagine that I'm going to tune in for more. Are, are you I mean, I know you have to watch these because you have to file the critics notebooks that you do uh, that, you, that you do so well with these. 
But we're, you know, if, if you had the option to not do this where you didn't have to write about this, would you even would you watch more of this? I, I would much rather have other alternatives. But, you know, look, 73 million viewers. And again, that's not including streaming, which is only going to have gone up since 2016, is a massive audience. There's just no pretending that people tuned this out. People tuned in for this. I kind of wonder if there had been able to be a half hour break, if Chris Wallace had been able to say, we're pausing now, if people would have been like, thank God, now I'm going to go do literally anything else with my life. But that's a lot of people watching a debate. It's that is not a disaster by any way on a ratings front. It's only a disaster on an intellectual front, an aesthetic front, a cultural front, a our society is falling apart all around us on 75 different levels already front. It's just, you know, whatever whatever the bottom was, this took a Yosemite Sam style pick to it and just kept digging lower and lower and lower and lower. And eventually you hit, I don't know, lava, whatever's in the middle. It awful. They, this was this was just so horribly unpleasant. And the whole myth of what an undecided voter actually looks like and what an undecided voter might have thought about this and the fact that the networks had to all find their five panelists of undecided voters who were giving their opinions on this. It, this is just so dire and so embarrassing. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing on both sides. It really is. It's embarrassing that this is where we are in America in 2020. And this is what the world is seeing regarding how our democracy works. And I think we probably talked just about enough about this horrible, horrible shit show. Yeah, I found myself yelling at the TV more than I probably have with anything else, including Dodger baseball. So, yeah, let's go to the next topic. Huh? What do you think? <laughs> Number two. Up next, it's October, or so the calendar says, and we're entering the seventh month of our new world. And yet there are still no signs that the networks and streamers are starting to run short of original programming. Dan, um, you've got a lot of new high profile uh, releases coming this month. So I'm just going to run through a couple and then we'll kind of preview some of the big, big launches that you're looking forward to. Bring so, it on. You know, Netflix, Emily in Paris launches this week. Warrior returns on Cinemax. Showtime bows the good Lord Bird. Next makes its long-awaited debut on Fox. I was long, picked up, what, over a year ago? Long-awaited by who, Leslie? Long-awaited <laughs> by, by Fox. And by uh, the people associated with the show, I assume. They're like, seriously, you is, your, yeah. is your show ever going to come out? Yes, it will. Yes, we held it because because of COVID. Uh, Supernatural's Endgame resumes on the CW. NBC bows its social distance scripted show Connecting. You've got space drama The Right Stuff on Disney+, Plus, which was originally developed for Nat Geo. Season two of The Haunting of Hill House, which is now an anthology entitled The Haunting of Bly Manor. That's over on Netflix. Dan, The Amazing Race returns to CBS. You've got a Tyler Perry show called Sistas launching on BET. Star Trek Discovery is back on CBS All Access. HBO Max has the, the West Wing special and the reunion. You've got the last of Jeff Loeb's Marvel originals, Hellstrom, over on Hulu. Grand Army on Netflix, which I feel like we could do an entire topic on that on that show right now. David Burns, American Utopia on HBO. You've got a lot of scripted shows returning to broadcast with new episodes that were produced during the pandemic, including the Goldbergs and the Connors and Blackish on ABC. David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman reunite for HBO's The Undoing. 
Superstore returns for its new season on NBC. And of course, the month ends with the long awaited second season of The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. So no matter how shitty October is going to be, Baby Yoda will be here to save us all soon enough. That's just a that's just a lot of pressure to put on Baby Yoda. <laughs> I mean, if anyone's up to the task, it's Baby Yoda. Let's be clear. <sighs> yeah, um, I, I find it very interesting. The mixture of things that we're getting this month, uh, you know, it's it's things that like next on Fox that had just been on the shelf, you know, that. That's what it is. It wasn't necessarily on the shelf. They were going to air it. It was going to be one of the bridge shows between last season and this year. Basically a, a late mid-season slash summer burnoff, which is where they, you know, the networks, a lot of broadcast networks put a lot of their less buzzy, let's say it that way, shows that they picked up. But this one, Fox said early on, like, look, we don't know what's going to go on with the pandemic. And as we've discussed on previous episodes here, they said, we're rather than burning this off early in the pandemic with, and without knowing what shows we're going to have for when we are going to save this and air this in the fall. And that way we can guarantee that we will have new scripted originals airing in the fall and probably maybe not at a time when other networks are going to have it. And yes, it was a safe bet at the time, but now you're also seeing ABC and a couple other networks that are actually going to have new episodes. Right. And, and so that's and that's make what it that what you will. And that's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to seeing what those things look like much more than I'm necessarily looking forward to seeing a lot of the stuff that was just done and around. You know, this season of The Amazing Race has been in the can for a while. And yes, I'm looking forward to watching it because I always watch The Amazing Race, so I'm happy to do it. Uh that's not going to give me any indication about a changing world, whereas seeing what the Goldbergs, the Connors and Blackish look like, what Superstore looks like, what anything looks like is it's it's the big mystery. I we, we don't know. You can go back to our interview in last week's podcast with Noah Hawley. And he talked about shooting the last two episodes of the Fargo season, basically double time after coming out of quarantine, and he didn't really seem to know if it was going to be noticeably visually different for audiences. You know, he, he sounded like he didn't think it was going to, but you just can't guarantee that. And so are you going to be able to watch these episodes and go, hmm, they're kissing less than they used to, or hmm, the school has fewer people in the hallways, or are you just really not going to notice, or are you going to be so grateful to have these things back that you aren't going to care? And I think those are all viable questions. And I think those are things that we're going to be asking ourselves pretty much nonstop on TV for the next couple months is, is does this look different? Does this feel different? And most of the stuff premiering in October really and truly is not going to look or feel different at all because it was mostly finished just before the pandemic or sometime before the pandemic and was just edited during it. And so something like The Right Stuff or Good Lord Bird or whatever, those are shows that were from before the pandemic and they just had time to do special effects. Haunting a Bly Manor, they just had time to edit it. Um, and so no one's going to notice the differences there. And those are a few of the big things that I'm look for, looking forward to seeing. And uh, But there's there's a lot of that. And then there's also the few sort of, I would say, genuinely badly conceived shows that are being treated as we film this during the pandemic and it's basically our Zoom show. So something like Connecting on NBC, uh, Netflix has a Genji Cohen one. Social I, distance. Yeah. So, yeah. And I don't I don't know that I really care about 
those at all. Uh, and not just because I saw Love in the Time of Corona and Coastal Elites. And so yeah, Freeform I, and HBO. Yeah. And I have a sense of what those things look like. And based on those, I have no desire to see other things. So maybe I'm going to watch a show like Connecting on NBC or Social Distancing on Netflix and see, OK, is this going to be the thing that actually cracks the formula and that actually is aesthetically interesting or thoughtful or contemplative or good. Um, I'm not holding my breath, but I'm I'm curious. I just don't need it. I I don't I, I don't require more Zoom in my life. I have plenty of Zoom in my life. It's too much Zoom. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know really why anyone thought those things were good ideas. Part of why they thought it was good ideas because they weren't sure production was going to be able to begin in August or September or October and they just needed to have reinforcements. So there's there's a lot of of that. And so it's just a wide mixture of things that are going to be basically TV as usual, things that are going to be quarantine strangeness, things that are going to be post-quarantine strangeness. I've loved all of the actors on social media posting various pieces of video and images of I don't know, director's chairs separated by uh by plastic screens or Everybody. Yeah, did you see? Did you see Mandy Moore? I think uh, I think this that... is us. First of all, she's pregnant, so congratulations to her. But also having to go and shoot this while she's pregnant, and and in these kind of you know that that's I'm yeah, that's a lot. But it was crazy. They look like mini toilet stalls that they've created for the for the cast to all hang out together, but not together. Yeah, and then there was a great one from one of the actresses on the Goldbergs, Haley, who gave like a whole set tour of what the makeup process is like and everything else, and. That was eye-opening, to say the least. And so, yeah, and so seeing what the actual fruits of this are, it, it's going to be worth it. I mean, it's going to be awful, because not like qualitatively. It's going to be awful if you're sitting there thinking, man, this is a thing they're trying to do. On the other hand, it's also still, it's optimistic. It's saying we're getting back to work. It's saying not business as usual, but people will get paychecks again. And so that's good. We We want these things to work. We want... Everyone to get paychecks. We want everyone to get health care. We want everyone to also stay safe. Yeah, I, there's October is going to be the start of a few months of very interesting and mysterious looking television where you're going to really just have to pause on almost everything you're watching going, when was this made? How was this made? Do I care or or do I have enough suspension of disbelief where I'm just going to be able to go? Oh, thank God the Goldbergs is back. Thank God the Connors is back. I I'm just I'm happy and I'm watching it. And I which I did to some degree with with Sunday's return of Fox's animated shows, which, you know, those things had been in the can, obviously, because that's how animation works. But even still, there was something so good about, OK, it's a Simpsons episode, period. Nothing, nothing strange, nothing unusual. It's just, OK, Bob's Burgers. Thank God. You know, so it's it's there's a lot of that. And I think we all need the distraction, even if. People like us aren't going to be able to be fully distracted by anything. We're always going to be looking for, you know, the guy with the thermometer on the corner of the screen going, you have a one degree fever time for you to go home. You know, that that's always going to be in the background of some viewers minds and three cheers for anyone who's actually going to be able to, uh, you know, <laughs> to simply lose themselves in television because yeah. we all need that. <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, we have done a ton of reporting on this. There's a great story on the site that um, I, I reported with Lacey Rose about how this is from a couple of months ago about how showrunners were thinking of returning and what scenes that they are trying to avoid, you know, so even during pilot season, I remember, you know, doing a casting director survey that was obviously killed by the quarantine, where you had a, a casting director say that even during pilot season in, in end of February, early March, they were already trying to avoid doing crowd scenes. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to kind of monitor to see like, you know, look, the Goldbergs has kids that are in college, right? So are you not going to see, you know, they did a house, a, a party episode last season, right? So are you going to, are you not going to see that anymore? Um when Grey's Anatomy returns, I'll be curious, you know, that that's a, it's a look, it's a, a medical drama, but it's also a soap with a lot of love scenes that something when the show was bounced back to nine, the 9 p.m. hour recent, you know, not too long ago, Krista Vernoff said she wanted to bring the love scenes back to that show. That'll be a great question going forward. So, yeah, definitely something to monitor, especially on broadcast where you're going to see the, the first immediate result of filming during a pandemic. So lots to keep an eye on. Number three. Up third. It's time for another mailbag segment. We put out a call on the Twitter and you guys came through with some very good questions. And we always appreciate that. A reminder, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. Our first email comes from Mark, who asks pretty bluntly, how does Netflix keep throwing billions of dollars at new content and their only return is subscriptions? Is there going to be a point at which their money runs out? That's the billion dollar question there, Mark. Um, I don't understand Netflix's built business model. Um, and I'm not alone in that thinking. Um, you know, I think their original content budget was over $12 billion the last time that I saw. And you've got some of these these big expensive shows that come and go in, in, in a week or two and they're out of the conversation cycle, which is the downside of the binge model. I don't know. I mean, nine figure deals for Netflix and Shonda and the Game of Thrones guys. And it's just, you know, I don't know how that, that works. I, I truly don't. And is there going to be a point when their money runs out? Eventually, they're going to have to come calling. Right. But, you know, at the same time, they keep these shows around for two, three, maybe if you're lucky, four seasons and they kill them before they get super expensive. So maybe there's a method to the madness. I don't know. So the answer to your question is, I have no idea. And that transitions us smoothly into a question from listener Donnie, who emails with the news of yet another Netflix cancellation. And this was referring to Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Do you see a future where people stop bringing their television ideas to Netflix? The streamer has developed quite a reputation for killing shows after one to two seasons, and they're notorious for keeping creatives in the dark and reporters also, I should add, as far as numbers go. <laughs> uh, with all the other streaming cable and broadcast options, why would anyone want to sell their show to Netflix unless it's a last resort? Well, they're still paying a lot of money, right? So... It's rare that you find, you know, you, we have an interview coming up shortly with Gillian Flynn from Utopia, who talks about working at HBO and taking the show to Amazon and encountering a series of budget issues. When you have a company like Netflix, these are people who are saying, make the show, make it right. Let's make it look as great as possible. And then they have different business models, right? You know, they want to make a family multicam that's low budget or they want to make a high end limited series like Hollywood that spends a lot on casts and costumes and locations and and sets. You know, they can make things at different price ranges. So why would anyone want to go to there? Well, they still are the biggest platform globally right now, even counting the fact that broadcast can can re has the potential to reach a broad audience. But Netflix can make a hit where some of these other networks can't. You know, I, I always go back to 
to a show like Greg Berlanti's You. Lifetime aired the entire first season. Nobody noticed. They reverse course on the renewal. The show hits Netflix and blows up and becomes a huge hit. And now it's a Netflix original because they took a guess and 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 bet on season two based on the creative and knowing what their members like because they have all their secret data. You know, they made that show into a hit. And whereas Lifetime couldn't and they didn't have the, the money to market the show. And I think that's another gripe when you hear a lot from from creators is, you know, Netflix spends money to market the show for its premiere, but then it just fades away into the background into another square box on your screen. So, you know, will people stop taking their shows there? I don't know. I would guess if they want to make their show and Netflix is offering them money to make their show <laughs> that they won't. But I think the bigger thing that that's changing in our industry is how many years people want their show to go on. So if it's a show that you think has a 10 season plan and you can get it on set at a broadcast network, that's going to be a huge cash cow because you still have all the global rights and everything else. And, and then you have a streaming streaming deal that will come from that later down the line, even if it's in the same company's streamer, but that's all revenue to a creator. Whereas if you sell a show to Netflix, it's all included. You get a back end buyout. So yeah, I, I don't think people are going to stop taking their shows to Netflix. I do think, because a lot of creatives want their shows to get made. If Netflix is offering you the chance to be on the biggest platform in the world right now, people are going to take it. Up next, friend of the five, Alan Seppenwall emails, I'm wondering when or if we are going to see a fuller impact of the production shutdown on the amount and kinds of scripted programming we are getting. He knows that a lot of broadcast shows went back into production in recent weeks, which we just talked about in our second segment. And I know that We'll get new episodes in November. But what about cable and streaming? Is there going to come a point in early 2021 when HBO or Netflix simply runs out of original programming for a while? Or was the backlog of shows produced before March of this year so great that there's a chance we may not run out of things? I think that it this goes down to a lot of what we were talking about in the last segment is that it, it's going to be a hodgepodge for a while. And, and that's just what it's going to be. We're, we're not running out of programming. And we're especially not running out of programming, assuming that these shows that are returning to production actually are able to stay in production, that, that they don't have to shut down because of, you know, entirely foreseeable but awful things. So let's cross our fingers on that. And that also assumes that there's not a situation in which everything needs to shut down. Because that's also, of course, an entirely viable possibility that either a second, third, fourth, whatever you want to call the wave of this comes back um, or a particularly bad flu season or whatever it is. Or someone tests positive or as we've seen this week in, in Vancouver, a lot of shows had to stop production or couldn't begin production because there was a testing backlog. There's a number of reasons that could that things could get could wind up going off the rails. But but let's let's just pretend that it's simply going to be a mix for the next for the foreseeable future really of of the handful of shows that are not really handful dozens of shows that finish production in you know February March right up to the edge in and, the before. And and they were done, you know, and so and so they had all this time for post-production and everyone's been doing post-production in quarantine in their own complicated ways. And so there'll be those and then there'll be the new stuff that's made under different circumstances. And then we're also going to see if the shows that I mentioned about the shows that basically, you know, Zoom shows 
Uh, if someone thinks that there's a reason to keep a development pipeline open on shows like that as a just in case, you know, you know, are there people saying we want to have these five scripted shows that we know we can shoot in a in a vacuum and we, we're going to have the scripts. And if we need to pull them out and we need to start doing that, that's what we'll do. And, and so I, I really don't think we're in any danger anytime in the foreseeable future of running out of TV. But it's just going to become an array of things where you don't instantly know when or where it's coming from. And so, yeah, it's I, 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 and I mean, Dan, don't forget, Netflix said early on during the pandemic that they had enough content, original content to go through. I think it was at least midway through 2021. They still have like the new season of The Crown and there's a Shauna Rhimes show, Bridgerton coming this year, I hear. And there's a lot going on. And, and I think there's a lot of other things, you know, that that's the other problem that w when you are in a peak TV landscape is you have no idea who has what show and what where they are in, in various level stages of production, because there's just too much content to keep tabs on, you know, like Shonda has a whole slate, right. For using her as an example, she has nine shows in the works at Netflix. So, you know, most of those were announced more than two years ago. Well, where are they in filming all of these? Like how close are they to, on, on, on some of these projects that have been announced that we don't know what's going on? You know, it's just there's just too much. And it's worth and it's worth um, remembering that different countries are resuming production at different rates. So if if New Zealand is back in production on things like the Lord of the Rings, Amazon show and things like that, then that's where the original programming is going to come from. And if other countries are basically back to business as usual because they did different things from us, maybe we will start seeing more and more acquisitions starting to come in when that starts being what. The pipeline is and so there's there's no one answer i continue to believe that i will have things to talk about on tv at least for the near future and i will knock on wood that that near future extends a year into the future or longer and then god willing everything will be okay um and and we're still writing about new series that are getting picked up and castings that are getting put in place which means people are ramping up for production like you're not going to cast the show until you have a calendar of when you're looking to film you know so that all, every time you hear a casting story to me it bodes well for for our industry so and you just as you said dan you got to knock on wood that that everything continues to go well and go smoothly and that everyone can can remain safe and healthy our next question should have a short and simple answer. Sam emails, can you address the status of the Orville this season and future ones? Well, the Orville moved from Fox to Hulu, I, I want to say two years ago, a year ago, because they couldn't, the show, the Seth MacFarlane live action show couldn't film the new season based on when Fox would have wanted it to return. So it moved to Hulu, which of course has had a ton of success with another Seth MacFarlane show, Family Guy, which remains one of the biggest acquired shows that that does well on that platform. And as I understand it, the new season, it was about halfway done with filming when it was shut down alongside everything else during the pandemic. So I would not expect that in 2020, maybe 2021, but yeah. As for additional seasons beyond that, that's a great question because that, that show is produced by 20th Century Fox TV, a.k.a. Disney. It's for a platform, Hulu, Dis which is also owned by Disney and Seth MacFarlane, as we noted a couple of months ago, signed a $200 million overall deal with not Disney, left Disney for Universal, for NBC Universal. So 
Great question on if Seth is going to put in the time to do another season of that show after completing the one that's already in the works. But he loves the show. He's very passionate about it. It'll be a great question. So there's the update on when the new season's coming. As for the future, wait and see. And let's close with a couple of fun ones, Dan. Friend of the Five, Chris Hainer emails, what Disneyland ride would make a great limited series at FX? Um, I will let you give your answer first because I'm going to steal it and piggyback off it. Well, I'm a Disneyland nerd. I grew up in, in Los Angeles. I'm a native. I love Disneyland. I've been going all I used to go three, four, five times a year. Used to have a season pass. I love Disneyland. I got my wife proposed to me at Disneyland. Um, the first time we said I love you was at Disneyland. That is a special place for me and one that I miss very, very dearly. With all that said, my favorite ride there or among them the Matterhorn. I love that ride. It's creepy and it's weird and it's choppy and it's fun and you just you, it's just exhilarating. So I would like a dark and twisty version of the Matterhorn. Um, and I'm going to piggyback off that by saying that I would like to use a Matterhorn related project to kind of do almost a backdoor adaptation of the Dan Simmons novel, uh, The Abominable, because while that technically is about an effort to uh, climb Mount Everest, I, I think that there's a lot of that that can tie into the mythology of the Matterhorn. Um, also, I would like to do something where you can resurrect uh, Splash Mountain and not need to deal with Song of the South anymore. So, uh, you know, I understand that they're doing it, that they're turning it into a princess and the frog, but I would like to find a way to kind of, I, what do you say you give the princess and the frog its own attraction and you find a way to save Splash Mountain from Song of the South? So I think that would... Or just give me a making of show about transforming the ride because I would watch that on Disney Plus, which did you watch the what was the Disney documentary of the Disneyland documentary? Uh, was, the, the Imagineering thing. Yeah, that was so good, man. It, it was good if you like extended commercials for all things Disney, which is totally or if fine. you're a Disney nerd and you want to understand the history of the rides and Walt and Walt Disney's original conception and seeing some like Tokyo Disney be built and and the 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 behind the scenes dealings of the rides and the construction and the Imagineers and, and the executives behind it. If you're a Disney nerd, watch that show. So I would watch a chapter of, of that on FX about this new construction and how they're going to work that. Okay. I, I, I think we can keep thinking about this and you can also check out Chris's uh, Twitter feed uh, because he got a lot of very, very, very involved answers from very, very nerdy people when he posed the question on, Twitter last night as well. So yeah. there's my, my fellow theme park friend, Chris Hainer. Uh, if you're into theme parks and all of that stuff, he is a must follow. He's also a, a good man. So give him a follow. It's at Chris Hainer. True story. And the last question for our mailbag and seriously, you see you sent good questions in this week. I think we have a few more that we can get to next week. Uh, this comes from uh, listener Devin, who writes, you have a $100 million budget for an eight to 10 episode season. You get to pick one showrunner and one star. Go. Um, I'm going to blow my budget and look for a collaboration between Shonda Rhimes and, and Ryan Murphy at Netflix. And I want them to cast a newcomer that launches their career and, and use that platform to, to launch a new a new star. 
I, I like this question because it's it's sort of a it's a money ball general manager kind of question because it becomes a question of how do you allocate resources? And I think the question kind of assumes that the allocation is going to be sort of a half and a half thing. And, and that's how you end up with the show like, I don't know, maybe The Undoing where you have David E. Kelly and then you have Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman and that's where your budget goes. That's that's pretty simple and straightforward. And so Leslie's answer kind of inverts it to one side, which is put all the money with the creative geniuses and then find new people. Uh, to, to some degree, I fear that that's how you end up with something like the Romanoffs. And so I <laughs> and, and so I'm inclined to be a little bit worried because then the answer is like, OK, we're going to give one hundred million dollars to Matt Weiner and let him travel the world. And let's see what happens. What could go I'm wrong? I'm not giving any money to Matt Weiner. Let's be clear on that. <laughs> entirely fair. So I think I might want to go the other way, which is to find a sort of a, a great young voice and, you know, maybe maybe underpay that great young voice a tiny bit and then, you know, see who the movie stars are who we haven't gotten to do TV yet. So I'm thinking, can we get Katori Hall to write a show yes. for, Den for Denzel Washington? I, I think that's a thing where you could, you know, you could still pay Katori Hall fairly well and then you could, you know, wheel the Brinks truck up to Denzel Washington. And uh and I think you could make that happen. It's or also, I would just watch Denzel Washington on season two of P-Valley from Katori Hall because I am obsessed with her. I am obsessed with that show. And she was great on our on our pod, Dan. She was indeed. Uh, so you, so I think that's one approach. I like the idea of going through the checklist of the quote unquote movie stars who haven't done TV. So it's sort of, you know, who is the... You know, who is the Genji Cohen acolyte who you could get to write a script that would allow us to bring Tom Cruise and Jennifer Lawrence to TV? You know, I, I, I'm just when you look at the number of people at this point who we haven't yet gotten the opportunity to do a press tour panel where we say, so why are you doing TV now? I want to make sure that we get all of those people out of the equation, that we just simply say, OK, now everyone has done TV and we can go back to our lives because everyone wants to do TV. So it's uh it's who can we find who can take very little money to do a script that in some way brings together Jennifer Lawrence, who, of course, did the Bill Ingvall show. We all know this. Uh, and Tom Cruise and and see, you know, just it's a checklist. Life is a checklist. Let's check off the last few, quote unquote, movie stars who we haven't gotten to TV. Yes. Well, reminder, as Dan said, if you have questions you'd like to hear us address on the on the show, please drop us an email at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's the number five. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Our guest this week is Gillian Flynn, a former entertainment journalist, author, and current showrunner and creator of Amazon's Utopia. Flynn has written the novels Sharp Objects, Dark Places, and Gone Girl, adapting the latter for the big screen and working on the HBO miniseries adaptation of Sharp Objects. Welcome to the podcast, Gillian. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
So getting started, you know, Utopia started back in 2014 when it was set up with David Fincher at HBO. And we'd heard at the time it was cast with Rooney Morris at the star. And then obviously it kind of fell apart um, over what I heard at the time were budget issues. How tough was all of that? And when you look back at the at the whole experience, having completed the first season, what was the, the, the experience like for you and what was the takeaway? To address the first question, yeah, it was budget issues. We just couldn't couldn't quite get on the same page. Um, and, you know, we had created what's basically a road picture where we were <laughs> burning a lot of buildings down as we went along. And, um, you know, it was just a, a certain cost and, and we never got there. But it was, you know, it was, I was, it went in a deep hole for a little bit just because, you know, I'd already written the 10 scripts and it felt like it was going to go. And um, I loved working with David again. And that was, you know, one of, you know, the reasons I put off, uh, you know, writing the next novel was, you know, just the excitement of getting to work, you know, get the band back together. He had introduced me to it way back when we were still filming Gone Girl. And, you know, so I'd worked on it a long time with this idea that we would, you know, get to work together. And Gone Girl had been such a dream that I guess I'd never... I was like, well, that was easy. Like, <laughs> it turns out that whole mythology about novelists going to Hollywood and having a tough time is totally wrong. Like, you know, this is great. <laughs> so easy. What are they talking about? Um, and then I came to the reality. So it, it was hard. It was hard. But I was really, really lucky to, you know, get that chance with Amazon. You know, we had a, a lot of non-takers because it's... Uh, you know, when we were back shopping it again and, you know, it was, you know, it's violent and disturbing and has a female heroine that, my God, God forbid, you can't root for. Um, and, you know, so it, it was not an easy sell, but I, I found a really, really good home at Amazon and they were just down with it. So that was lucky. And so I guess the takeaway is to, my big one was to just appreciate when things get made, you know, that, that it's sort of magical that projects get made and, and that if they get made and you're happy and it's what you intended to do, it's all the more magical, ultimately. <laughs> right. And it did obviously land, you know, at Amazon with a nine episode order. And that was even reduced down to eight because I think it was budget issues again. I mean, it just feels like it's it's increasingly hard to make a show and this is not uncommon. I should I should note that too, whether it be at Amazon or just in this streaming universe and even cable universe, it happens on FX shows all the time. Um, but what what has been like, you, you know, is it is this just because of the rising costs of making a show when you especially when you bring in, a, you know, a, a star like John Cusack? Um, you know, is it what, what is it? I mean, this has happened to you three times now if you on the same show. Well, the, the budget was reduced before Cusack and before Rain were even cast. It was just that, you know, it was an expensive expensive show. And, I, you know, I think with an untried showrunner, you know, I'd never done a show before. So I have to appreciate that they give, gave me that opportunity and that shot. And, um, and with the material that, you know, is, is not an automatic gimme. It's, it's, you know, difficult sometimes dark stuff that's not guaranteed to please every single person in the universe. Um, so, you know, I, and, and it was, ex it was still expensive to make, you know, so, um, 
I think that was the case of this show, at least. Will you say that you had 10 episodes that you'd already written for the HBO version? How do those compare to what you ended up actually shooting for Amazon? And when you were trying to pitch it to other places, was it an asset or was it in some way to your detriment that you actually had those 10 episodes finished and, and you thought you wanted to make those? By that time, we were pitching nine episodes because in trying to get to the HBO budget, we had already dropped an episode um, and so pulled out some plot lines. I pulled out some characters, you know, shortened certain arcs. Um, so it was nine episodes as we were pitching it. And um, they didn't change much to lose. Um, ad admittedly, on my part, you'll notice that episode five a lot of things happen. <laughs> it's a little, I was that, that that was I was very insistent on keeping the first three episodes exactly as they were because I really really loved them, and I was fine with kind of playing with some of the backstory. Um, but uh, you know, an, another character got taken out, and uh, but otherwise, um, as far as the essential material, the only thing that substantively changed when I went to Amazon was. Uh, to move it, I had set it originally in kind of a near future situation, uh, like 10 years in the future. So hilariously, when I started writing it in 2013, I had, uh, I had said, oh, it's it'll be 2023. <laughs> now, <laughs> as you know, it's 2020, and so it was not near future anymore. Um, but uh, I changed things like uh, at the time, when I was writing it, I'd really been obsessed with, you know, those water shortages and L.A. was under, or, you know, California was undergoing that huge drought and people weren't washing their cars. And, oh, I'm from Missouri. I just said washing. But um, they, <laughs> um, and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think they were, I can't remember, it was at Cape Town where they were doing, um, everyone was doing a countdown to when they were officially going to be out of water. Um, and so I had things like, um, everyone, you know, I was inspired from reading at the time a lot of books about London during the war where everyone had to use, you know, coins to get their gas turned on. Um, so I had that for water where you just, you can't turn on the tap and get water. Um, so you have, uh, you know, you, you put the coin in to get water. And, and that's why there's still that scene where, um, where Grant gets into the penthouse and turns on the big bathtub and is so excited um, well, that's originally why he was so excited was that he had never experienced being, having him to be in a full bathtub, but I still liked that scene, so I kept it. <laughs> well, now, okay, so when did David cease to be able to do it? And do you have any sense in your mind, having worked with him, how it might have ended up differently if you'd had him rather than the team of directors that you ended up having? Well, I mean, it would have been a... It would have been a David Fincher show, which would have been, you know, um, you know, uh, you can't imitate him uh, at all. And so I wasn't trying to when I started again. I felt like it would be no good to try to do that. But I, I certainly it was interesting because I certainly wrote it originally for him. You know, I was I had I'd written Gone Girl and developed it with him and worked so closely with him and and. You know, written certain scenes because just because I knew he'd like them, I you know I knew he'd like to film them. I could see them, and so um, when when we were redoing now with a, an amazing 
group of directors, including Tony Toby Haynes, who did four of the episodes and is uh, just a wonderful, wonderful director. What I kind of took my cues from was the idea I was obsessed with in the first place, which was conspiracy. And I like that idea of, you know, I love all those 70s conspiracy thrillers that came out after Watergate, like Parallax View and All the President's Men. And when I was pitching it to studios, I was I was calling it, uh, it's Goonies meets Marathon Man. <laughs> Who doesn't want to see that mashup? <laughs> uh, I mean, you had me at Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> my kids' favorite, I got to introduce my kids to that the other day, and they it was a huge hit. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so I was t- you know I was um, talking to the directors like I want I want it to have that feel I want it to be you know gritty and textured and you know full of different angles and shots through windows and reflections and mirrors so that there's always something to look at and certainly with the wonderful art director Steve Arnold we worked a lot about what can be in the background and my props department and you know what what little Easter eggs everywhere so that if you want to pause the shot, you can see certain little clues and and little things. You don't need them to understand the conspiracy, but if you want to get into it, they're there. You know, asking the big question here, this is a show about a global pandemic that premiered during a global pandemic. Obviously, when you're writing this and filming this and shooting this, it's it's the farthest thing from from your mind. But can you talk a little bit about having this show come out right now? And, you know, there's a disclaimer that Amazon puts out in front of episodes emphasizing that this is not based on an actual pandemic, which is, you know, as Dan and I you know said, it's nightmare inducing. So, I mean, can you talk about the impact of, of dropping this show during a pandemic like this? I mean, it's, you know, where people are starved for new content and yet. Yeah, I, I was struggling a little bit to watch the the first couple episodes. So well, yeah, were you? Yeah, we came to the thought that you know that people who who really were going to be af- affected by it and it felt too close of home, we kind of accepted that they might not watch it now. Maybe they'll watch it later. Um, maybe they'll never watch it. And um, and but that. You know, it was never intended to be a pandemic show, certainly. It's not, you know, it, it's not outbreak. It's not It's not following the procedurals of a pandemic. It's, it's a story about conspiracies and pandemic is in the plot line. So, you know, that, it, that hopefully people are link. there's enough there that people are linking onto other things and it doesn't feel too overwhelming. Well, but it's still, it, you know, you're in February and March, and I assume at that point you guys were in the editing process. What does it feel like from your perspective when suddenly you're turning on the news and they're showing, say, for example, a picture of a virus, and you're like, oh, we have people discovering a picture of a virus that looks a lot like that in a comic book. This is strange. What is that feeling like? And especially when you're moving from editing in an editing studio to doing it remotely. Yeah, yeah, it was a, I was a smug American. I was, you know, sitting there going, you know, we were hearing about this outbreak and, you know, but it was, it's, you know, it was kind of like, oh, that's, you know, first, you know, it's it's never going to come here. It's not going to reach here. It'll be, it'll be figured out. 
um, and isolated. And I, you know, I really thought that, you know, we haven't had a pandemic in a hundred years. Um, and, you know, I was, I was going back and forth out to LA where all our editing was, uh, you know, uh, semi-weekly. And I, I remember it was, we were into March and I was still sort of like, you know, okay, I'll, you know, I'll see you guys next week. And then everything shut down. And um, so it was that late into the process. And then we were editing remotely um, from our, just from our laptops. And, you know, uh, the new, uh, you know, I had the news on kind of 24-7 because that was at that moment where we were all trying to figure out exactly what it was and, you know, where, how dangerous it was, where, what to do about it, you know, all the, the precautions, you know. So I'm like, is it like I microwave my kids and I Windex all the <laughs> bleach my mail? Like, what, what are the rules? And looking up at the, you know, looking at my screen and seeing Rain Wilson in his hazmat suit in the hot zone and then, you know, looking up at the TV screen and, and seeing, you know, things that were way too similar you know, happening in New York, and um, it was, I, the word surreal is overused, but I can't think of a more appropriate word for it. It was, it was very surreal. Did you, was there any conversation, or what were those conversations like with Amazon when it came to discussing how you market the show, and even if you can premiere the show, like, what, did you talk about delaying this at all? I did not talk about that with them. You know, that, I left that to their decision because they know better than I and are, you know, um, but certainly had lots of conversations about, you know, do we acknowledge the coronavirus? Do we put in some ADR that mentions it among the other diseases, you know, that, that are in utopia uh, and decided no, we would, that it felt a little icky. Um, and so, you know, really made that choice to just continue with it exactly as it had, had been intended to be originally. So there were, there were no points of people looking at certain beats and saying, this is being played for dark comedy here. Can we laugh at this now, for example? No, um, no, uh, is the short answer. It, it was really, you know, we're just going to continue as it is. We had, we had the film. It wasn't like we were going to be able to do reshoots or anything. So it wasn't, you know, it was, the conversation was more, we're going to make the, you know, we're going to do this as best as we intended to make it. And, and then we'll see. <laughs> you know, the finale does set, set the show up for a second season without spoiling anything here, but as you talk about, or or I would presume pitch a second season to Amazon, have you thought about if your show exists in a world where COVID exists, considering you you know you you made the decision to not incorporate it into season one? I should have that conversation in my writer's room. That's a very good point. Um, <laughs> it certainly will not be. Um, it would not be a major plot point, but we do need to decide what world. It is because the world has changed so much, and certainly we're acknowledging that piece of it, um, you know, and and kind of where we are right now. Um, and it's been interesting to see, you know, the some of the conspiracies that have popped up around COVID that feel very much like 
some of the conspiracies that I had written and, you know, Johnny and Kuzak and I had talked a lot about what his character, Dr. Christie, you know, who was his vibe, who is he, who is he like? And, and, you know, I was like, oh, you know, think, kind of think of Bill Gates. Like he's kind of like this superstar, um, this <laughs> unlikely superstar of, you know, the, the tech, you know, biotech world. Um, and then all these conspiracies started coming up. You know, there's a line in there where he says, uh, you know, this is a, this is a, a right-wing conspiracy, anyone who's blaming me for this virus. And, and then here's this Bill Gates theory that he's created this virus um, on purpose. So some of the, seeing some of these things come to life has been very, very strange. But there's still the, you know, you, you see it, it's on Twitter and everyone else, people sort of going, I used to like you know, virus movies or whatever. And now I discover, okay, it was all a failure of imagination because nobody could have anticipated that people would stubbornly refuse to wear masks out of political reasons or, you know, sort of things like that, you know, where, where our ability to fathom things ends, does that extend into the writer's room where you're going, okay, well, okay, the first time around, here's how we envisioned how a world would respond to a virus attacking cities. Now that we've seen how people actually do respond, how do we respond to that? Is, is that a part of what you have to do? Um, you know, I'm not planning on continuing, and and this is all, you're talking like we're so early in the process, so early. So um, I really can't speak to too much of, of season two of what it will be because I feel like it's all going to be, be changing drastically. Um, but, but certainly we're very aware of, of where the world is right now. And it's, it's, a, it's a show that's supposed to reflect where we are as a society and how we treat each other. And there's no better measure of that than when we feel under pressure and that, you know, our lives are at stake and seeing those different reactions, you know, is, is definitely informative. You mentioned John Cusack a few times and, you know, we're on this conversation. We're all of the same generation here and we all grew up on certain kinds of roles from him. Uh, what is the rush? This is from me your- holding the boom back box over my head. <laughs> One of my favorite movie scenes, pop culture scenes ever. I was, so, so- I was sure Lloyd Dobler was going to be my prom date for sure. <laughs> I, so, I, yeah, I think I married the lesbian version of Lloyd Dobler. So, oh, yeah. well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> I need to think about that. Um, so uh, so what is kind of the rush from your perspective, generationally speaking, of getting to have John here and getting to give him this particular kind of role? Yeah, I mean, it was really... Cool. You know, I never once, I kind of made it my rule, never once to gush about (laughs) too much about say anything because he was doing the 20th or 25th anniversary tour last year. Um, And uh, I think he, you know, he was, he he didn't need to talk about it anymore with me. So, um, so I didn't need to tell him about my crush on him and, and, as a, in high school or play, <laughs> tell them that my, that literally our prom song was uh, "Your Eyes," but um, <laughs> Peter, Peter Gabriel classic, yeah. yeah. But um, I loved it because I feel like you know for a while he'd been our generations. You know, first he was the teen, and then he was kind of like the twenties, thirties, cool slacker hipster Gen X dude. But we've never really seen him as a grown up 
you know, fully, like, captain of industry, family man. Um, it just felt like a, a cool and different role in that way, even, to begin with. And then he he's a super cerebral guy, and I knew that he could pull that role off. And we, uh, hey, we had so many interesting conversations about, you know, the, the what would be the vibe of Christie and which different historical figures, you know, he might reflect um, that, you know, that you wouldn't think of. Um, and, and, and so that it was just a real kick. You know, you mentioned, I just want to go back really quickly, you know, you mentioned that you are kind of already talking about what the plan for season two is and how a real world predicament to say it lightly uh, affects it. But do you have a long-term plan for how many seasons you would like to see the show go? And how did that change as a result of the pandemic? It was originally pitched as three seasons. I pictured it kind of as a trilogy. I mean, but that was way back at HBO. And the, the true answer is, I don't know. Uh, um, I don't know how many seasons it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of, I have to wait and see uh, how it unravels. That's Hollywood, right? I mean, I have to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, looking ahead too, you've also, as part of the show landing at Amazon, you have, a, a, you signed a first look deal with the streamer. Um, what else are you working on? Um, are you looking to adapt any of your other uh, works for the streamer or are you developing new material for TV? Like, how do you make that dis- distinction between what you want to write for TV versus what you want to write as a novel? I mean, that, that's a great question because, you know, I have certain ideas that are floating around in my mind and there's a, you know, every once in a while I think, you know, Killian, that's not, you're, you're thinking in, I've been, I've been doing screenplays a lot while trying to finish this next novel and sometimes I get into screenplay mode and it's like, oh, that's, you know, that'll be my next book and it's like, that's, you're thinking that's a movie. Um, you know, you're, you're, th- you're thinking visually, you're thinking, you know, you can, I can kind of now at least start figuring out what that difference is. But the next project is to finish this novel I've been working on for ever kind of part in and part out as I've been doing other things. Um, but it's, uh, that's my baby. And I'm, I'm really, it's, I've left all these characters in the middle of um, very dangerous <laughs> and horrific situations that I'd like to <laughs> keep them, get them out of that limbo and finish the book. Well, now you've had the experience of adapting some of your own books, but you've also seen some of one of your books, at least be adapted by a different writer. When you're approaching somebody else's work, like the British series Utopia, how do those experiences inform how you work as an adapter rather than a generator of original story? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, first of all, the the first thing is overcoming the idea that you're playing with someone else's world. And so I was, you know, when I signed on originally to do it, I, you know, I've, I've never been someone who's like, the original was great. We should do it again. You know, that's <laughs> not a good reason to do, to do an adaptation. Like we'll do it again. We'll just put it in America and that'll be the difference. Um, or you will change the time and that'll be the difference. You know, so to me, when I originally signed on, it was like, is there, is there something to do here that, can feel different enough, you know, are there hooks that I'm more interested in than others? Um, how, how it feel, you know, can I create new characters? I wanted to make sure that I had that room. 
And I was incredibly lucky because Dennis Kelly, who did the original, is the ultimate gent and was just consistently, you know, I would send him a new script and like then like scrunch myself in a little ball to see if he was going to be like, what have you done to my beautiful world? Uh, and he was always kept just saying like, if, you know, why do a remake unless you're going to remake it? You know, don't, he was consistently incredibly cool about it in a way that I would, it would be impossible for me. I, if someone else were adapting my stuff, I, I would have truly be a real bitch about it probably. Um, uh, so, um, so th- I mean, that was, that was lovely to have, to have that freedom. And I don't think I would have felt that freedom if I had felt like I was really upsetting the creator. Cause having been on the other side, I have a lot of, you know, certainly I understand that and have respect for that. So, you know, that was a big difference. And then what I always do with adaptations is, you know, whether it's my own or someone else, I also did widows, uh, which was a, a, a UK uh, TV series originally um, from the brilliant Linda LaPlante. I, read or watch it one time with making notes um, of scenes that I really love and, and plot lines and certain certain things, and then I don't let myself go back again, ever. Um, because it, when, one, it sort of feels like cheating almost, and two, you know, you just have to have your, you have to have it become its own thing. You have to ha- have, it becomes something new. You know, if it's a book, I, I, I never love, you know, just direct adaptations from book to movie where, you know, I just don't think those usually work. Um, I, and I understand there's also <laughs> certainly an understanding that the original uh, Utopia was such a beloved cult show and there was the idea that the fan folk were going to be not happy with anything that was was different. And I, I understand that because I am a fan folk myself and I'm, uh, you know, I do the same thing where I cross my arms and like, harumph, <laughs> like, this isn't, this isn't li- exactly like the book. Like she had blonde hair in the book or, you know, you get on these uh, things. That, but also in my mind, you know, unless it's different, why... Why are you doing it? Well, now, to to follow up on that, we'd be remiss to not mention that you had, before all of this, a full career as a journalist. Are there instances where journalist Gillian or even TV critic Gillian come out of you, where they where they sort of pop up as you're watching a rough draft of something or where you're, you know, thinking of something and you go, oh, no, that's that's the wrong brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that never goes away ever. Um but I think I kind of started that way. My dad was a film professor, and so that's what we did once a week is go on father-daughter dates to the movies to, like, often incredibly inappropriate movies for children. Like, I saw Elephant Man when I was eight or something, and I, I never, I still to this day have never seen the end of Elephant Man because once people were mean to him and took his cologne, um, <laughs> I, I was wailing so hard I had to be escorted out of the theater 
And my dad was like, okay, I'll see you in the lobby. <laughs> it was, you know, <laughs> it was back in the days of free range kids. Um, back in the days when you could actually go to the movie theaters. Oh my God. Back in those days. Remember those? Uh, I do. I do. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, seeing Alien with him when I was like seven and all these things. That, but the great thing about my dad was he always wanted to get my real opinion on them and he never let me off the hook. It was never like, oh, it was good. I liked it. Well, what did you like about it? Well, I liked, you know, and he would make me think about it and talk about it and, you know, or why didn't you like it? Well, this character, you know, it seemed like this character was just it's kind of boring. I don't know why she was there because it was always she who was undeveloped um, and uh, and really thinking about it. And so I started at a very young age kind of analyzing that. And I do that with my, so I still do that with my, with my stuff. I, I know when I look at something or read something, I, I can go like, wow, Gillian, you really half-assed this one. Like you gotta, you gotta go back. You gotta go back. And I'm, I, I think my training as a journalist um, for t- 10 years, well, while I wrote my first two books, you know, I was, I was still a, a working journalist and, um, it comes in really helpful because it demystifies the writing process. You're not precious about the writing process. You gotta, you gotta keep going. You gotta, and I love rewriting. I mean, that's my favorite thing in the world. When I, uh, when I, I get a novel done, like uh, by the time it's published, they're little, I'm still like, they're p- pulling it out of my hands. Like it's going to press. And I'm like, no, there's a word rep. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately? Um, so what I was watching, I have not gone to bed. Um, I'm an insomniac. And so last night I watched uh, Wilderness of Error because I'm a, a absolute true crime. And I'm my most true crime obsession is Fatal Vision, which I've read like 8 billion times. And I'm an Errol Morris fan, so um, I I watched that. Uh, <laughs> highly recommend. It, it it gets very very into the sort of meta aspects of the true crime stuff in the in the episodes that are this week. So ah uh, well because it, yeah <laughs> I I wrote Gone Girl, so I like the meta aspects of anything. So <laughs> that's good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Gillian. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Utopia is now streaming on Amazon. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Hulu's Monsterland, Emily in Paris on Netflix, Warrior on Cinemax, The Good Lord Bird and the Comedy Store on Showtime, the second Walking Dead spinoff World Beyond, Next on Fox and Connecting on NBC. Dan, what you got? Whew, that's a lot of options. Uh, let's see. Okay. Haven't watched any of Connecting on NBC, so let's not worry about that. I've watched one episode of Next on Fox, and I will watch more this weekend. But let's say I'm not anticipating that's going to be necessary. Um, Emily in Paris from Darren Starr is going to be some people's cup of tea. It is very much Parisian travel porn, and it is... Beautifully shot, and Lily Collins is doing her darndest Audrey Hepburn impression, and I guess there's amusement to that. It is so much an assemblage of kind of retro cliches about the French and ugly Americans, and it feels 
so dated. And it also feels as if it's dealing with a version of Paris that hasn't existed in years and that has no connection to the actual modern Paris. And I don't think it cares what current Paris is like. It's a it's a cliche ridden fairy tale. On the other hand, it is definitely escapist because you're not going to confuse this with the real world. And, uh, you know, chances are good that nothing in your world is as pretty as the Parisian backdrops in this show, which did film in Paris. So, yeah, and this is its and I should note Netflix is its third home. It was originally developed for TV land where Darren Starr has younger and then it moved over to Paramount Network and then they dropped that and sold it to Netflix instead. Yeah, it's it's a thing that exists. Um, you've got Hulu's Monsterland, which is an adaptation of an acclaimed uh, anthology of short stories, kind of regional horror things. And it's got a, a very strong cast across its eight episodes. Uh, the first episode features Caitlin Deaver and Jonathan Tucker. If you keep watching, you get uh, folks like um, Kelly Marie Tran. You get um, Bill Camp. It's uh, really Mike Coulter. And... Anthologies are always uneven, but in a perfect world, you can look to an anthology series and you can go, uh, you know, here's here's the one that works and this is the one that you want to check out. And the other ones are varying degrees of good and bad. Um, I would say of the eight episodes, none of them is a complete success, but some of them have interesting things. It's sort of one of those every horror trope is tied to the subtext. So the true monsters are inside all of us. The true monsters are addiction. The true monsters are grief. The two monster, the true monster is the American dream and corporate malfeasance and whatever. None of them really come together. In my review, I described it as a series of Monster of the Week X-Files episodes in which Scully and Mulder never show up to actually make things better. And so sometimes they just kind of end. And yeah, it's some of them are interesting and there are a lot of good actors. I didn't mention Nicole Bahari, who's in an episode with Hamish Linklater, you know, so that's reasonably interesting. Uh, there's an episode with a with a mermaid. Who knows? Um, there's an OK episode with Taylor Schilling and Roberta Calindrez, who I think is really, really extremely talented. And I think that's maybe the best of them. But it's but none of them are scary. So there's that. So uh, speaking of things that aren't especially scary, there's the latest Walking Dead spinoff, World Beyond, which takes place 10 years after the whatever, the zombies, who knows? And it's a, a somewhat different perspective. That's that's just what it is. It's 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 like Walking Dead YA, right? It, yes, it is basically the CW's Walking Dead. That is that is what it is. It is a cast of, you know, it's a varying cast because you, you have people like Julia Ormond, who is established and whatnot. Annette Mahendru from uh, The Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a lot of kind of uninteresting, callow kids who decide to do stupid things so that audiences can see a different corner of the world covered by zombies. Um, I will say that in the second episode, there was one absolutely fantastic bananas variation on a zombie gross out that I, I truly loved. And it took roughly five seconds of screen time. 
But for five seconds, I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's great. OK, and then it's gone. So, look, this is one of those things where if you're still a Walking Dead devotee and you want to see more corners of the world, this is that. But God, you know, it should have been like five years ago that we were getting a show like this when when the brand had sufficient equity to get people to care. I don't think people do anymore. And probably the things that people should be more likely to watch are the two shows that are premiering on Showtime. Um, the Comedy Store is a five-part documentary about the famous comedy store in Los Angeles. And you might remember the Comedy Store and its backdrop being the setting for I'm Dying Up Here, a Showtime show that lasted two seasons and then died up there. So what this ultimately ends up being is a companion piece to a show that doesn't exist. Well, that's a little odd. On the other hand, it's got a an amazing cast of of current and past stand up comics, you know, people as big as David Letterman and Jay Leno and Chris Rock and Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey presumably at some point viewed this as a potential companion piece to Showtime's Kidding, which also no longer is with us. So, you know, um, it it dodges some of the problems with contemporary stand-up comedy and its toxic environment. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Louis C.K. is a talking head in this documentary. And all I could do every time he came on screen was go, oh, OK, I guess we think that's OK now for him just to go. Ha ha ha. I have funny memories of the comedy store. Ha ha ha. OK. Uh, but a lot of the stories are really fantastic. And a lot of the material from those early comedy store performances are, are just remarkable. And, it, and it's good to get these reminders of, I don't know, a lot of the brilliant figures who we've lost. So someone like uh, Freddie Prince Sr. Uh, gets a lot of time in the first episode. And it's it's nice to be reminded of that. Sam Kinison is central to one episode. Um, and it's interesting to be reminded of what a force of nature he was. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And then Good Lord Bird, is adapted from the novel by James McBride and uh, Ethan Hawke's co-stars and is one of the co-creators. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays John Brown and uh, it is a, a crazy, big, lively, great performance from Ethan Hawke. And it, it is worth watching for that simple and straight up. And if you watch this and think, do they, do they know how big he is? Do they know I'm laughing at this? Yes, they do. Uh, the, the, the James McBride novel is, is largely comedic, and the series is also largely comedic, even though John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry that helped contribute to the beginning of the Civil War, not so much a comedic thing. So it's, it's an interesting blend of, of tones, uh, totally worth watching for Ethan Hawke, totally worth watching for David Diggs as Frederick Douglass. Uh, Joshua Caleb Johnson is actually the star. He's a young actor who plays Onion, a slave who John Brown liberates. And um, but John Brown also thinks that the kid whose name is Henry is actually a girl named Henrietta. And so he makes Henrietta dress in a dress and play a girl for the better part of the series. And it's vaguely amusing. Uh, and it's it's a really, really good performance because it's a subtle performance. And Ethan Hawke and David Diggs are going so big. And it's it's fairly entertaining. There, there are times when it lags. Uh, but then every time Ethan Hawke shows up, it's like, OK, <laughs> I'm just happy to watch this. And, and yet you also are constantly aware, well, if I was seeing more of him, I might 
get a little exhausted. So it's a it's a real high wire act. And I, I liked it a lot. I think that uh, that of the shows premiering in the next few days, Good Lord Bird and then the Comedy Store are probably the things you want to check out. And that's a lot of TV. Who was it who was worried about us running out of TV? Come on. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And that feels like a good place to wrap things up. As always, thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And a reminder, if you like us, please continue to spread the word and let THR know. As we've discussed on the show, the industry is changing every day and we are not immune from those changes. And thank you again to all the people who continue to leave reviews over on Apple. We do read those. And thank you for your continued support on Twitter as well. Indeed. Subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. Say hi to us on the Twitter. We like to hear from you. And if we haven't already mentioned it like seven times on this podcast, you can ask any mailbag questions at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan, go Dodgers. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.